September 26, 2010, lecture discussion number 16 on the book of Romans. And once again, I should remind everyone, especially those who are following along via the CDs or the internet, internet, which is most of you now by far, that we have, uh, that we are currently diverted from Romans chapter 2 into what I like to call the Gibeonite saga. So if you are tuning in and expecting a um, lecture on the book of Romans, you're getting one, but it is really uh, in the Gibeonite saga, which sends us back to Genesis 34 up through Joshua 9 and 10, and then along to 2 Samuel 21. And that's where we all are now. And that is because Paul, through whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write the book of Romans, began to address the meanings of circumcision in Romans chapter 2. That's, that's a child who is being told he has to come in and sit into the lecture, and he does not want that. He is protesting. He is a Protestant. Okay, that's a little, jo- a little church humor. Very small. Thank you for laughing. We're stalling for the child to be given a, a tootsie roll or something of value. Okay, here we go. Anyway, Paul began to address the meaning of circumcision in Romans chapter 2, the sign, the symbol, and suffice to say, uh, the Gibeonites uh, figure prominently in any discussion of circumcision. I tell people all the time, you can't begin to talk about Romans unless you go to Habakkuk or Habakkuk, whichever you wish, uh, and then you cannot talk about circumcision without discussing the Gibeonites because of the <coughs> value they bring to the discussion. <coughs> Therefore, we found ourselves today at Joshua 9 and 10, which is what we were doing last week when we were so rudely interrupted by life, and we were comparing the differences between 9 of Joshua and 10 of Joshua, trying to figure out how they fit together, and then we intended to add them once we had them uh, figured or put together and contrasted, then we were going to take that sum, if you will, and go back to Genesis 34 and put it to that, and then we were going to move it on or carry it onward to 2 Samuel 21, where the hanging of Saul's descendants occurs. Um, perhaps more appropriately, Saul's collaborators. It's very hard for people to understand why Saul's descendants got hung. It doesn't seem fair that his sons or, or children would be hung for something that he did. But so let me put it this way. His sons were collaborators or co-conspirators are the ones that actually carried out. They were the hooded executioners, if you will, those who participated willingly in killing the Gibeonites in direct opposition to God's revealed will. Well, they, Gibeonites, knew who came after them. They knew it wasn't Saul personally. They knew, you want to think of it this way, the, the ones that were hung were the, uh, were the German SS. They were very much guilty. And then, of course, you have Rizpah's vigil all in that as well. So that and more must be dealt with in order to solve the Gibeonites and it follows naturally that circumcision, or at least a part of circumcision, is this thusly unshrouded or unveiled or comes out of the smoke for you. And you begin to have a valuable insight into what circumcision is and uh, what it can do for you all through Scripture is extraordinary. Is that your child, Lindsay? Why not? 
Never pass up an opportunity as a grand, as a potential grandparent. And the baby's absolutely welcome. You know that, don't you? Dude. No, no, it's better than the sermon. Everyone knows it. Okay, now, that's where we are and where we left off and what we're often about today. Now, Mark Lindloff, who has probably been to every lecture I've ever done, dating back to 1985. Isn't that about right? How old's April now? Tell me she's not 40. Diana, sorry. <laughs> there a little senility slipped in. Only you and I would know that. How old is Diana? 28. That's close to 40. It is. Don't laugh. You <laughs> <laughs> Some of you, you better be worried. It goes 26, 27, 28, 29, 41. That's how it goes. Ask anybody. It's exactly how it goes. Then it goes 41, 54. And then 63. That's how it does it. It's amazing. Diana's 28. That's incredible. But anyway, Mark has been to probably every lecture I've ever done dating back to 1985, or at least he's heard them. If he's not actually attended, he goes up on the North Slope, as you know, and sometimes to uh, Scotland, right, to the North Sea, huh? He used to commute here from Louisiana. Uh, and needless to say, he had lots of uh, free airline tickets. Anyway, Mark, as you know, as he demonstrates when he comes up here and does the elder uh, portion of the service, as you know, is a devoted student of Scripture, and he has a vast knowledge, uh, and with that comes considerable insight. And I know that he will be embarrassed, but it's all true. So he comes up afterwards last Sunday to tell me that naturally he remembers when I did Joshua 9 and 10 before, which I had to look it up to see when it was that I did it before, because he remembered it. I, of course, have no memory of it at all. And it's fascinating to me as I reread some of the, the uh, commentaries and books that I have on Joshua, um, as I did this week, I look back and I see all my notes in the margins, and I cannot remember ever writing them. I cannot remember. But Mark remembered. And when did I do it last? Do you remember, Mark? You got two guesses. Nineteen was good. Ninety-eight is exactly right. That's exactly when I did it. Nineteen ninety-eight and nineteen ninety-nine, which will give you an understanding of how long I did it on a Wednesday night, uh, <laughs> a long time ago, obviously. And I should insert, as I said, that that, that I have no memory of it at all. And it's kind of funny. It's almost like it's all brand new to me which is of great concern to my wife. In any event, needless to say, Mark pointed out that I omitted a key circumcision reference, one that I had previously emphasized. I didn't know that I had previously emphasized it until I went back to look it up. And he's absolutely correct, Mark is, and that I sh it should not be forgotten, because what it does is connect Joshua 9, which is where we are, back to Genesis 34. Um, 
And what is that? Of course, that is where we have Joshua 9 and Genesis 34. We have the same thing happening. I hope you've, you've seen this already. And that is, I have circumcised Jews in Joshua 9 seeking to kill and plunder Gibeonites. Isn't that true? And, and irrespective of the oath that prohibits it. Isn't that true? That's happening in Joshua 9. Do I have that in Genesis 34? I have circumcised Jews seeking to plunder Gibeonites, irrespective of an oath of circumcision. It's the same thing. I have it in both places. And the obnoxious stench that results in Genesis 34:30, or the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Romans 2:24. If the Jews of Joshua had overrun Joshua, which they could not have done, and gone through the leadership, which they could not have done, and attacked the Gibeonites to kill them, which they could not have done, why couldn't they have done it? God would have stopped them. And they would have been disobedient. But if they had, it would be identical to Genesis 34. So before we, we go back to where we belong, which is picking off the items of our, of our lists that we did last week, we have to reach back and grab Joshua 5. And that is, of course, what? Mark's fault. That's right. So open your textbooks up to Joshua 5. And here we're going to go and deal with this today. A very important uh, portion of Joshua that I was skipping intentionally, well, mostly unknowingly, but I was trying not to go back and pick all of this stuff up just because of the time. But this is a very important uh, piece, and I, I regret now having missed it this time through. As you can see, most of you have a heading above in chapter 5 of Joshua. What does it read? Yes, as a second generation circumcised. So it was. When all the kings... How could you forget that if you were teaching a class on circumcision? And what are you... Okay. So it was. When all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. Now, has he dried up waters before when he's bringing a millions of Jews across? Yes, he has. This So immediately you see the relationship between the drying up of the Jordan River, the Jordan, the descendor into death and judgment. Okay, where does it descend from? Adam, Joshua 3.16, everybody knows John 3.16, but you should know Joshua 3.16, Revelation 3.16, there are lots of cool 3.16s out there, not just John. So you see this typology that is the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until... Uh, we had crossed over that, their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Once again, God has put terror into the hearts of those who are the enemies of Israel. He does it a lot. He did it in Genesis 34. He's doing it again. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself. And circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. And that's very often misinterpreted. We'll get to it in a minute. So Joshua made flint knives. By the way, how many flint knives we need? A whole bunch of flint knives. We gotta have a lot of them. 
So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. That's what they call it. How's that for a pre-buffet picture, huh? We got a mountain of this stuff. <laughs> sorry about that. Not really. Not really. That's a fake sorry. <laughs> but I have a big pile, don't I? And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Very important. All the people who came out of Egypt, uh, the males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. I hope you're thinking of the obvious questions here. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that He would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that He would give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, was it flowing with milk and honey? Was there one great big Willy Wonka Hershey's? No. Why does he call it milk and honey then? We have milk everywhere. We got honey everywhere. No. Why does God call the promised land the land of milk and honey? What do you have to do now to find out? You have to study what milk means to God and what honey means to God. Now you're into the honeybees of Samson, aren't you? Which is an antichrist reference. Good luck with that. He kills a lion, a bunch of honeybees in it. Takes the honey out, gives it to people, it's defiled. It's a really cool story, the mystery of the Samson honeybees. Okay? What happened to everybody in the wilderness? All dead. Except who? They didn't obey. What's the next obvious question? What was it that they weren't obeying? Who did obey? Joshua and Caleb. What does Caleb mean? It means Gentile dog. It's my favorite Hebrew name. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Obvious question? Yeah. Why not? So it was when the people had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Does that remind you of anything? Good. That reminds you of Genesis 34, doesn't it? Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. And that is where Joshua pretty much has his camp. And he does his, he keeps Gilgal as an encampment site. He likes Gilgal. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, which, by the way, is the exact same day that Jesus Christ chooses to be crucified. Because he's God and he can keep time, he's outside of time, he knows time, he makes time, and time does what he says. At twilight on the plains of Jericho, and they ate of the produce of the land of the day after the Passover, unleavened bread, and parched grain on the very same day. 
Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, there's Joshua 5. Now, obviously, many things of great import are in Joshua 5, but for the sake of making progress back towards Romans, we cannot do Joshua 5 any justice. Therefore, today will be just the absolute bare minimum. But this is a tremendous typological treasure here. It, lots of very cool stuff, applicational stuff, by the way, hidden in Joshua 5. Self-application. Find yourself in Joshua 5. You're in the story. Sometimes he puts your name in there. So find yourself. The first generation were circumcised, but they're dead in the wilderness. The second generation, passing through the Jordan River, the river of death and judgment that descends from Adam into the Dead Sea is parted for them. And they go through and they stand on what? They stand on promised land ground. So they stand on promised ground. And these are ones that were born in the wilderness and they were not circumcised. And that's the obvious question. Why weren't they circumcised? Were they supposed to be circumcised? They were supposed to be circumcised. Who is supposed to circumcise them? How come these, these kids were never circumcised? I should have no one. Do I have uncircumcised Jewish people, the boys today? Very few. I have very few uncircumcised Gentiles, especially in our country. But very few uncircumcised Jews. Here I got a whole generation. I got millions of them. And this is the second generation. How come they weren't circumcised? Obvious question. Got to deal with that first. But now they're going to be circumcised. After they go through the Jordan River, after they're standing on promised ground, they're going to be circumcised. And it says a second time. And it doesn't mean them individually. Let me just cover it this way for you quickly. It means this is the second time Israel is circumcised. The first time Israel is circumcised, they don't obey and they all die in the wilderness. The second time Israel is circumcised, they do obey. And what happens? They seize the promised land. The first generation did not seize the promised land. Did they have an opportunity? And what would, what stopped them? Well, I saw big people. Look, that, you know, those guys can dunk. We can't play them. I have that experience as a coach many times. Right? Kids are watching warm-ups, and they go, we can't be. Those are giants. We can't take them, coach. They'll block every shot. Look at them dunk. I said, well, they've spent a lot of time practicing dunking. No time practicing shooting. No time dribbling the ball. That's another story for another time. Take them left. Okay. But the Israel now is being circumcised a second time. And the Jordan River, death and judgment descending from Adam. Can't say that enough. Joshua 3.16. Got to have that vision of understanding what the Jordan River is. And they pass through it safely. And the ark goes first. And they go through it easily because the waters are heaped up. Right? The ark goes first. And the ark stands Firm in the midst of the Jordan River. So in the midst of the death and the judgment that descends into the Dead Sea that nothing can come out of, 
The ark is in the middle of that, and the waters do not harm the people of Israel, the second generation, and they cross over to the promise. And the first thing they do when they get across from the other side is what? Circumcision. We've got to do this right now. Bang, we're here on the promised land. Got to be circumcised. What is that? That is an establishment that is a connection to the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So we have to understand the Abrahamic covenant or we can't go another step. What is the sign of the, what is the Abrahamic covenant? You took the test. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace and blessing and promise, right? Salvation by grace, grace alone, through Christ alone. Have to have that. Now we can move forward. By the way, same thing happens to Peter at the end of the book of John. Peter is there at the end of the book of John, and Christ asks him, do you love me? And he says, blah, 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 blah. And then Christ says, do you love me? Another really bad answer. Two bad answers. Finally, he answers it correctly. And he says, you are omniscient God. That's what that's about. It has nothing to do with the loves. People do all this Philadelphia. That's all I come up with. (laughs) Because I stumble it over that. But agape and all this. They do all these word exercises on the different words that are meaning love and that. And it's a bunch of nonsense. It's all about the fact that. He couldn't answer the question correctly, and finally he got the right answer. You are omniscient God. Christ is omniscient God. Once Paul, uh, Peter had that as a picture of Israel, he can now be put into service. Same thing's happening here. I can't put this generation into service until, until they have an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant, until they understand circumcision. Now, obviously, by the way, just to say this as an aside, I've got a couple of people that haven't heard me do this. Obviously, the place that the ark is standing in the middle of the Jordan River as the people are going across, that is the exact same place where the floating axe head of 2 Kings 6 is brought up by Elisha. It is the exact same place that Christ's baptism is. It is the exact same place of Naaman, the Syrian, is healed of leprosy. That is why Christ is being baptized, because he wants to be in that spot. What's the obvious question? Yeah, what's so special about this spot? This is a special spot. Do that on your own spare time during the rest of the service. But you have the Ark of the Covenant By the way, Ark of the Covenant, you all saw the movie, haven't you? Ark of the Covenant, you didn't see the movie? Indiana Jones? What was that, 40 years ago? What covenant? It's called the Ark of the Covenant. What covenant are we talking about? You have to pick one. You've got to know one. It's also called the Ark of the Testimony. What testimony? Anyway, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony that's in the middle on that spot that Christ wants to make sure he's baptized because he doesn't need to be baptized. John looks at him, John the Baptist, John the Immerser, that's what it means, doesn't mean Baptist. They're all called the, I always wanted to be the 13th Immersion Church instead of the 1st Baptist. Okay, the 7th Baptist, whatever I could be, but it's an Immersion John the Immerser, he looks at Christ and says, I shouldn't be immersing you. This is crazy. You don't need immersing. 
You don't need baptism. He understood immediately who Christ was. Now, Christ is typified. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Christ. It is going through the nation of Israel. It is walking through the land, right? It has inside of it the law. And the people of Israel, the Jews, are protected by the Ark. You cannot, the law, the condemnation of the law cannot get through the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. It, It protects us. Christ protects us from the law, but He also keeps the law. He is sinless, okay? All of that typology. He's hidden. They used to put uh, dolphin or porpoise skins over it. Obvious question. Where do they get the porpoise skins? Or Red Sea. That's where they got it. But they hid. They carried. They covered it. So no one knew what it was. It had a special rule. Had to put it on poles. Lift it up on poles. It's a tremendous typology in the Ark of the Covenant. So, Christ is in the middle of the Jordan River and everybody goes across. And he keeps the water of judgment and death that descends into the Dead Sea that comes from Adam from killing the saved people, right? There's your typology. And most of you have heard me say all those things many, many times. But some have not. Also notice in this what we just read, the repeating of the phrase, came out of Egypt, came out of Egypt, came out of Egypt, came out of Egypt. I got a group that came out of Egypt, and I got a group that's what? Born in the wilderness, uncircumcised. So I got the came out of Egypters, and I got the uncircumcised, born in the wilderness guys. So differentiation is being emphasized. The distinction between the first generation that came out of Egypt but was consumed because they did not obey, and the second generation that did obey. So I had two groups that came out of Egypters that did not obey and a barn in the wilderness guys that did obey. The first generation did not possess the land. They refused to enter into the promised land, the promise. They refused to enter into the promise. They refused to go through death and judgment safely and end up on resurrection ground. They didn't want to do that because they saw giants. And that always, whoa, blew my mind when I'd read that. What do they got? What do they got? They got a cloud, baby. I mean, that thing can do some real cool stuff. It's got, they, they overhead, there's no, there's no weapon we could even imagine. There's nothing ever been depicted in maybe Death Star, I guess. I don't know, but you have a weapon flying overhead that's pretty powerful, and you're worried about a what? A giant. What's the matter with you? You got that? You, you just got to kind of eat a sandwich and go, pillar of cloud. Get, get, get the giant for me, would you? But they don't. They're petrified. What is wrong with them? They, though, that did not possess the land, that refused to enter into the promise, that refused to go the final leg, that the Abrahamic covenant, they're rejecting the promise of... Who is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? Christ is. They reject the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And they're consumed in the wilderness. Now, 
They did not keep the Passover and they did not circumcise their sons. This is only the third Passover that's kept. They kept two, the one where they leave and the one at Mount Sinai, but they don't keep one in the wilderness for 40 years and they don't circumcise any of their male children. Obvious question, why aren't they doing that? They wouldn't take the promise, they won't keep the Passover, and they won't circumcise. What's they thinking? Why is they thinking that? Again, they have the pillar of cloud overhead, right? And they're... And their shoes don't wear out and their clothes don't wear out. It is an irrational response. I got a cloud overhead that's got rocks and he's good with rocks. Giants don't do good with rocks. Or hailstones, if you will, but it's really rocks. But again, why did the first generation refuse to circumcise their sons and refuse to keep the Passover? That's an important question. You've got to solve it. So, why? Why not? Do they know? Every one of them is circumcised. And God corrects this at Joshua 5. So Joshua 5 is the circumcision correction chapter in the Old Testament. So anybody that was doing anything on circumcision certainly would bring up Joshua 5. You would think. (laughs) After the Jordan River crossing, similar again to the Red Sea crossing, the sons of the first generation are given an opportunity to obey, and they obey, and they're circumcised. Now, by the way, I hope you see the picture of Abraham here. Abraham did the same thing, didn't he? He walked around, made flint knives, sharp rocks, and circumcised everybody in his group, didn't he? A couple hundred, maybe, maybe more, maybe 500. I'm sure it was a shock that day, as we've discussed. Abraham comes back and says, we're all going to do the sign of the... I'm sorry, yeah, of the Abrahamic covenant, everybody form a line. Well, that, and do you obey? And they all immediately obey. And I want you to see also the connection. Did you notice, I took you back to Genesis 17. Where should you go when you have a bunch of Israelites that will not circumcise their sons? I have Israelites I have, that will not circumcise their sons. Who's in charge of circumcising the sons? Who should be doing this? But they won't do it. They won't circumcise. Just where else in the Bible it has anything to do with what we've been discussing? You do it. Yes, immediately. Did you notice the connection to Exodus 4, 24, 26? What's that? Moses and Zipporah, right? She wouldn't circumcise Moses' sons. And I had the commander come. I had the angel of the Lord come. I had a Christophany. I had a pre-incarnate Christ come and grab Moses. Moses and Zipporah refusing to circumcise their son, or Zipporah especially refusing to circumcise her son. That is disobedience. And the angel of the Lord comes. Christ comes. Now, let me read to you Joshua 5.13. Let me move my fancy device. And it came to pass when Joshua 
was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Which was a very good question. So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. What's the obvious question? Why do we keep taking off sandals? And what does this place have to do with anything? It's obviously a very important place. But do you notice once again, just like Moses and Zipporah, I have circumcision in Exodus 4.24. In that case, I have disobedience. And the angel of the Lord comes. Christ comes. In Joshua 5, I have circumcision, but I have obedience. And the angel of the Lord comes. And who is he for? So this time, a contrast to Moses. Joshua has been obedient with respect to circumcision. And what's Joshua doing? Here's your general. Think military today. The modern-day equivalent would be the CENTCOM commander. This would be David Petraeus. I, I hate to give him this role because I don't know any human being could be equivalent to Joshua. But your general says, okay. What we're going to do today, while we're in the midst of the enemy territory, is we're going to take a few days off while we circumcise everybody in the army. Essentially, what does Joshua do? He incapacitates his entire army. The entire army of Israel is shut down, unable to fight, absolutely helpless. Does this remind you of anything? What does it remind you of? I have an army absolutely incapacitated. This is Genesis 34 again, isn't it? Except this time it's not the Gibeonites, it's Israel. Joshua incapacitates his entire army with circumcision. Is that a brilliant thing to do militarily? Yes, the answer is yes. It is. Because he's got the commander now comes. That's good. This is the way it should have gone last time. So notice the connection to Genesis 34. Another military force there was shut down because of circumcision. Okay. What's the obvious question now? I've wiped out the army of Israel. Sorry, I cannot put my arm over that um, because it messes up the reception. Another, I have an army shut down, the entire Jewish army, military, shut down by circumcision. What's the obvious question? Who's there? Anybody notice? Are you going to miss a mountain of foreskins? How big a mountain is that? Is anybody going to notice this? I got people watching these guys every minute. I got them inside. Can you? I always think of it this way. I got spies in there. Hundreds of them, I would imagine. Hundreds of spies in there. Because I have nations all around. They're surrounded. I got nations everywhere that are worried about being wiped out. They know that this is an invading force. 
And they've sent their spies in to find out what they're going to do. I always imagine the spies get put in the circumcision line. <laughs> this kind of makes me laugh. But why wouldn't they be? How would they get out of it? Everybody's got to go through the line, right? They wouldn't know. That's, that is a, probably, from the spy standpoint, a, a good thing. But he didn't think so. He didn't report for a few days, did he? The point is, is why, or the obvious question, why isn't there a reversal of sorts to Genesis 34? Why not a preemptive attack or preemptive charge? Why didn't the Canaanites, the armies of the, of the promised land, of the land that God was going to just take over with the nation of Israel, why didn't they attack? Would it have been successful? No, why not? God wouldn't have let it be successful. But they didn't know that. I would have expected them to attack, just like what the Jews did to the Gibeonites. Do you see the same elements here? That's what I'm trying to get you to see. I have the army of Israel seemingly vulnerable. And also this reproach of Egypt. Did you notice that? This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day, which means rolling away. What is the reproach of Egypt? The reproach of Egypt is rolled away. God gets rid of the reproach of Egypt where they camped. What does this refer to? Well, this refers back to Exodus where the Egyptians said this about God. They said, God will take... In Exodus 32, 11 through 12, God will just take you Jews out there and he will kill you in the mountains. And what happened to the Jews? God took them out there. They refused to take the promised land. What happened to them? They died in the wilderness. Exactly as the Egyptians sneered and charged. They made a, 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 an accusation against God and against, Jew, against the Jews. You will just go out there and die in the mountains. God's going to, it's, it's a sucker bet. He's going to take you out and kill you all. That sort of happened in the one sense. But in the other sense, this is where God ends or rolls away the reproach or that attack or that sneer or that mocking um, inference from the nation of Egypt. Okay. Now, let's summarize our much too brief analysis now of Joshua 5. Abraham immediately obeyed God and circumcised all the men of his command, if you will, in Genesis 17. He immediately obeyed and did it. Moses and Zipporah had to be forced to circumcise their son, Exodus 4. And Christ himself had to come and seize Moses unto death. And Zipporah did it under force and rejected the theology of it, if you will, saying that Moses was a husband of blood to her because of the circumcision, which is a tremendous, as you know, picture of Christ there. The first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt did not obey. They did not circumcise their sons. They didn't keep the Passover. They didn't enter the land. They did not obey. Joshua, the second generation, he did obey. He circumcised all of the men of Israel, kept the Passover, and entered the land. And Israel was therefore now eligible for something because they did the circumcision, kept the Passover, and entered the land. They're now eligible for something. What is it? 
They're eligible to be led by Christ himself, and they were. And this generation, the second generation under Joshua, was without dispute the most obedient and spiritual of any generation of Israel. None before it, only one before it, actually, but none after it had any of the obedience or spiritual understanding of this generation. Okay, there you go. There's your Joshua 5. Now we can finally start today's sermon. You laugh. Who's responsible for this? That's right, Mark. That's right. Everybody points at Mark. Blame Mark. Okay, well, we're back to our, back to our list. Just for today, I will take a quick look at it and shut it down. Joshua 9 list, item P. Let me see if I can get my leash to get me back here. Item P. This is Joshua 10. Oops. I'm stuck. I have enough leash. I just can't get it around things. Item P. Fear greatly. Okay? So we'll put a line through it. So we'll get one done today. Now we'll go back to Joshua 10 and we'll look. Isn't the magic platinum rotating dry erase board wonderful? We will find its complement. Is there a complement over here? Yes, right there. Fear greatly. The element is in both places, so there must be either a comparison or contrast or both. In this case, it's both. Feared greatly, feared greatly. The Gibeonites heard and feared greatly. They clearly understood that God had commanded Moses to kill all the inhabitants of Canaan. The Gibeonites knew they were going to die, and they feared who? They feared God. They were afraid that they were going to be killed, every last one of them. And they'd already dealt with the Jews before. They knew that they were fully capable of killing every one of them. And they were very much afraid. They understood Deuteronomy 7. They had paid attention when Joshua read the entire Pentateuch to them. They were fearing for their destruction in their lives. Then we have the king of Jehovah, Jairus Salam, Right? God provides peace. That's what that means. And it's been contracted down. Jehovah Jireh Salam means, or is contracted down to, um, be, and now we call it Jerusalem, right? The king of Jerusalem at the time, he heard of the other destruction of Jericho and Ai and, and also that the Gibeonites had left the fold and he feared greatly as well. Both groups fearing greatly. I have two groups of people fearing their death. And as soon as I see two groups fearing their death, and how did they respond? Did they respond the same way? Yes or no? No, they didn't. So I have two that did not respond the same way to their impending death. Where am I in the Bible? Where's the New Testament compliment? I have two. Impending death, they don't respond the same way. What did you say in the back row? That's right. I have the classic two thieves on the cross scenario again, right? This is the classic 
two thieves. Both had the same information. Both had equal access. Both knew death was intimate. Both were without hope. One thief says, takes a flyer, remember me. Plus, he's watching the crucifixion of God, and there is no crucifixion like this ever, 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 ever. And if you ever make the crucifixion the same, you've heard me say this thousands of times, you destroy that thief. And you also destroy Simeon the Cyrenian and why they're there. And you destroy the loud voice that Christ has on the cross. You destroy his sermon to the, to the Jews. You destroy the salvation of the Romans. There's no explanation. This crucifixion of Christ, absolutely unbelievable. Everybody that saw it went, what in the world was what are we watching here? That's why any movie, and I was talking to Steve last week, any movie that in any way makes you think this was a normal crucifixion is absolutely, totally illiterate, biblically. This is the crucifixion of God, who is in absolute, total control of it, to the, to the pinpoint spot that he wants to be crucified. Those Romans had no choice. They were following along under his will. But again, I got the classic two thieves scenario. Both thieves were out hope. One takes a flyer, the other one doesn't. Because one looked at the, both looked at the evidence, both had to know. This is amazing. And one said, this is God. And remember me. And that's what's happening here. Gibeon makes peace with Jesus, don't they? Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua. Jesus. Gibeon makes peace with salvation. And the king, what's he do? He hides in a cave. That's his plan. One makes peace, the other hides in the cave. One seeks peace. Gibeon submits itself to slavery, throws itself at the mercy of Jesus, and says, Do what is good and right to us. We are in your hands. That's Joshua 9.25. That's what they do. Was that a good idea? That's a good idea. The king of Jerusalem says this, Let me attack those who have made peace with God. And I always ask myself when I see that, who thinks this way? Who thinks this way? Who, when they find a Christian who is saved, who thinks this is the person I'm going to try to destroy? Who thinks that way? What kind of person says, I'm going to take someone who has made peace, who seeks peace with God, who is willing to submit themselves to a lifetime of slavery, to doing holy things for God and for others. I want to destroy him. Who thinks like that? What kind of person thinks that? Pretty much all of uh, academia today, most of the media, most of the political Hey, the Apostle Paul thought that way, didn't he? You got to become a Christian, and then we have the, my favorites, the Inquisitors of Spain. They would make you a Christian. You try. There's some really bad doctrine right there. Bad doctrine causes all kinds of weird things in people. But who wishes for none to be saved? What kind of person would want all to perish? You know, if I'm the king of Jerusalem and I hear the Gibeonites have made peace, what am I thinking? 
hey, how'd you do it? I'm on my way. I got my dirty clothes on. I got my old, my old wine. I'm lining up. Hey, I'm from a far country. See my moldy bread. I mean, if it works for those guys, I'm going to try it, right? I got no chance. They got the commander. They've got Christ himself. This is just going to be one big rock stoning mess for me. But instead, he doesn't make peace himself. He does not want to submit to a lifetime of slavery and submission to who? He does not want to say, do what is right and good to me. He doesn't want to put himself in the hand of God. He wants to attack and kill those who did. Cool. Now notice how Jesus Christ, God, responds to all of this. What he does. The cry comes, save us, remember me, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the cry of the Gibeonites. Essentially, I added the tax collector and I added the, th- the second thief. And Christ immediately marches, because Joshua represents him here. He marches, he mo- mobilizes that army and he comes immediately. And he marches all night. And he, in this case, Christ does what to save the people of Gibeon? He stops the creation. He stops the universe. He interrupts his creation. He suspends his laws. And then he chases down those who attack the saved. And, and it is they who will be slain with rocks and hanged from trees. And now we're headed to where? Rizpah. Second Samuel 21. And let's just clean it up here. Do not delight in attacking those who surrender to Christ. That is a huge mistake. Anyone who does that is going to suffer greatly at the throne. A time of reckoning is coming for those who seek to destroy the ones who make peace with God through Jesus Christ. There's no hope for those people. That is a hopeless thing. You see the musicians come? It's because it's time to stand up and be dismissed.